All right, well, this morning we are in 1 Corinthians chapter 7. I think I shared some thoughts with you a few weeks ago that, that this was, I don't know whether to call it a dangerous chapter, a difficult chapter, an interesting chapter, a powerful chapter. It is the next chapter in what we are studying in God's Word. So it brings us into some very relevant and very important spaces of our lives. And so this morning's title is Divorce, Radical Thoughts from Scripture. All right, here, I need, this is a group participation moment, so I need everybody to stand. If you're capable of standing, I need everybody to stand. I should probably do this halfway through my messages to make sure everybody's awake, but we're going to start off this way. All right, if, I'm going to ask you to sit down if any of these descriptions fit you. If you had parents, either one of them had been divorced. If you as a husband or a wife at some point in your life have been divorced. If you have children who have been divorced. If you have siblings who have been divorced. I want you to sit down. All right, so if you're, if you're standing, then you uniquely have not had front row seats to an event of divorce. Right, so those who are seated, this subject today has touched your lives differently than those of you who are still standing. Now, some of you guys are standing who shouldn't be standing, right? If, if you are in a marriage where you or your spouse has been divorced, if you are related to a person in your family directly, your parents, they, maybe they didn't get divorced, but they were divorced before they married, and then they had a family, and so you've had divorce in your history. The, your, your life has had to manage this topic, right? So everybody who's seated... You've had to manage this topic in your life. And those who are standing, you're going to feel differently about this topic than those who are seated this morning. So I just want you to just take a look around how this subject shows up in our world today. It's affected our lives. And so we need to talk about it. All right, everybody can sit down now. All right, two weeks ago, I warned you that I was going to give you the longest introduction to a message that you'd ever heard. This one's probably going to be the second longest introduction to a message you've ever heard. Um, and I, I'm doing that on purpose to, in order to be very careful about a subject that's very difficult. And, and realizing, how, you know, we don't know everybody at the same level. So there are many folks we've walked with for years. You know a lot about what we believe and a lot about what we say. And you're going to pull a lot of those thoughts into this conversation. But there's many in the room here. You're just getting to know us. And so you're going to hear something today that you might be trying to figure out, what do I do with that? What do these people believe here? Um, here's a very critical matter that you need to be prepared for. Right When you pick this book up, I'm going to use a common phrase today. It's going to come at you. You know, you know that phrase? Hey, man, don't come at me. Um, that phrase is, is used basically because you have intruded into space in my life that I don't know that you're okay with me standing right here. 
right? So don't come at me, man. Uh, the, how do you guys know if you pick the Bible up, it comes at you? Have y'all figured that out? That it finds you standing in the wrong place. Can, I, can we just all agree that this Bible's never in the wrong place? So if it's coming at you and you feel like it's an awkward moment, it's not because the Bible suddenly has taken a wrong position on something. It feels that way because we live in a fallen world where the world has drifted from the things that God has created. And we have done so individually, and we've participated in that at various levels. So at some point, if you're going to venture into reading this book, you are going to find yourself at odds with it. Your story, your life, what you have lived out, choices you have made, things you've avoided, you're going to find yourself at odds with this book. Can I, can I just encourage you, don't seek to protect yourself from that moment. We sang a song this morning that Eric introduced us to, this, the God of salvation. We sang that song. Like that was a great concept, the God of salvation. But do you recognize what you're saying when you sing that? You are agreeing that you needed to be saved. That's good news for us because it does something in our lives that's vitally important. But it introduces you to something about yourself. You just kind of ain't all that. You don't have it all together. You haven't lived right all the time. You are at odds with God. You're in danger of falling under his judgment. right? But yet we're able to sing about something greater than that. So listen, the Bible is going to find you and your life standing in the wrong place. And today it's going to introduce us to this subject of marriage and divorce. And it's going to find many of us standing in the wrong place. And can I just say, please don't run out of here and not be able to read these verses with us. And, and please do this. Do, do rescue me from this topic. This is not my topic. There's no copyright on this. I don't own any of this. I'm just preaching the next verses, okay? This is 1 Corinthians chapter 7. The inspired word of God by the Holy Spirit through Paul is going to bring us into contact with this topic. But let me just say this, and I'm going to move through these verses really quick here for a moment and come back to them. This is not the first time the Bible has pulled up on the people of God in the marriage category and then at odds with them. This is what's going to happen in 1 Corinthians chapter 7. And by the way, please notice this. My introduction versus Paul's introduction to this subject. You might notice in 1 Corinthians 7, Paul doesn't introduce the subject. He just jumps right in with both feet. So I I don't know what you think about the Apostle Paul, but I am much nicer than he is. Because he doesn't warm you up to this subject at all. He just tells you like it is and you're left to deal with it. Um, But there are places in which God's people begin to be affected by the ideas around them. And they begin to do relationships a certain way, marriage a certain way, and divorce a certain way. Right? And this is what we find, right? If we go 500 years before Christ to the book of Malachi chapter 2, and I'll take this apart a little bit later, it says, because the Lord was witness between you and the wife of your youth, to whom you have been faithless, though she is your companion and your wife by covenant. 
Did he not make them one with a portion of the Spirit in their union? And what was the one God seeking? Godly offspring. So guard yourselves in your spirit and let none of you be faithless to the wife of your youth. Now this is a massive statement. Right, Some 500 years before Christ, the people of God have found themselves in a place where it was common for them to divorce one another. They had learned that from the land, which is where we learn most of this stuff. And God steps in and speaks to them in this moment. And he pulls them all into this conversation. And he puts a yoke on every one of them. Let none of you be in this category. Right, so this is speaking to everybody under the umbrella of marriage for God's people. All right, fast forward from that moment where God interacts with his people to Matthew chapter 19. Right, so now Jesus is going to speak to, I guess I could call it a form of Judaism. Right? It, it is Judaism, but it's a form of Judaism. It, it's got a lot of other ideas mixed in with it. It's God's ideas from the Old Testament mixed with a bunch of other ideas. And there's a way of doing life that's common for God's people. And in this marriage category, there's a way to do it. There's a way to be married. And there's a way not to be married. There's a way to get out of marriages. And there's a way to dissolve marriages. And divorce was part of their culture, a big part of their culture. And so a comment comes up as Jesus is doing kind of a town hall meeting like he would do. And he's doing Q&A with folks. This is the conversation that gets had in chapter 19, verse 3. A Pharisees came up to him and tested him by saying, Is it lawful to divorce one's wife for any cause? He answered, Have you not read? That he who created them from the beginning made them male and female. And said, therefore, a man shall leave his father and his mother and hold fast to his wife. Listen, if you want to understand why Christians make a biblical argument for marriage being between one man and one woman, you get that from these types of passages. A man and a woman were by God's plan joined together in this thing called marriage. And the two shall become one flesh. So they are no longer two, but one flesh. What, therefore, God has joined together, let not man separate. They said to him, why why then did Moses command one to give a certificate of divorce and to send her away? He said to them, because of your hardness of heart, Moses allowed you to divorce your wives. But from the beginning, it was not so. And I say to you, whoever divorces his wife except for sexual immorality and marries another commits adultery. The disciples said to him, if such is the case of a man with his wife, it's better not to marry. That verse gets read over really, really fast. But it is a demonstration of even Jesus' disciples had been discipled by the culture. So that when Jesus spoke about marriage, the way in which the Father had created it to exist amongst human beings, even Jesus' own followers backed away and went, whoa, time out. If that's how marriage is, I'd rather not be married, man. What were they talking about? 
They were hearing Jesus narrow the portal called divorce in a way that was foreign to their ears and shocking for them to hear. And this is why the debate, remember the Pharisees loved to pick on hot topics because they could divide people against Jesus with them because they were loyal to their topics. So they throw out one. It's kind of like, hey, let's, let's try this one out. Jesus, watch this. It's lawful for a man to divorce his wife for any reason. Watch this. This is what they're doing. It's a hot topic. People have opinions about this. They've got practice going on. This is a common feature of their lives. And Jesus answers it. If you notice carefully here, and if you're going to do some study, and I hope all are going to do some study in this category. I am barely introducing this topic today. Jesus answers two questions here. He seems to be done when they ask him the first question. Is it lawful for you to divorce for any reason? He says, that ain't the way this thing's designed. And he stops. And then they ask another question. What if Jesus had never said another thing after that? Then they ask another question. Well, why did Moses allow for there to be a certificate of divorce? And then he answers that question. So you got two different ideas that are in the room here that Jesus is interacting with. And then you have the shock of, whoa, if that's how marriage is, I don't think I want anything to do with it. Really? If it's not easy to get out of, you don't want to be married. Is that what you're saying, disciples? Because, you know, God who created marriage, he looked on Adam And he said, it's not good that man should be alone. I will make for him a helper suitable. And so he makes a wife uniquely crafted in a suitable way for this man. And that was God's answer for something that was not a good thing. So I think this was a good thing. But isn't it interesting that the culture shifts and moves away from that and says that kind of commitment, that kind of walk, that kind of relationship is not a good thing. It'd be better if we weren't even married than to have that be the definition for marriage. So listen, if you're sitting in our culture today at odds with some of what the Bible says about marriage, we're not the first ones to do that. The Corinthians were not the first ones to do that. The day of Jesus was not the first ones to do that. There has always been a culture that says, I don't necessarily like God's idea about marriage. Now, here's, here's the challenging moment of being the church together with the Bible. We are a church who exist by the authority of this word. We call ourselves what we are. We are led the way we are led. We follow certain things because there's not a person in this room, whether you're a pastor or not, you don't have any authority apart from this book. The revelation of God, it being true, this is the inspired word of God. It has authority. So we gather as people around the truths of this book. Now here is a tension for all of us to face. The, the church, on the one hand, the church is, is principles. It is truth. That is what the church is. It's defined that way. The church is a pillar and buttress support of the truth. That's how Paul explained the church's existence to Timothy. The enormous amount of emphasis in the Bible on teaching. We are not a social club that's got no mooring to anything no no the feature of the people of God is the truth of the word of God so on the one hand we've got 
principles that God has spelled out why everything that he created exists. What the master plan for it all is. How it brings glory to God. And the Bible's all over that. And that's what we spend our time learning about. On the other hand, the church is a gathering of people. Fallen people. Living in a fallen world with fallen world stories and realities. Realities of life that are hard. Realities that produce tears. That produce disappointment, disillusionment, challenge, difficulty. Now, how many of you guys know when I pulled this topic out on divorce, these two things are going to pull on each other today? Because there are people here whose stories in this category are compelling, are hard, are difficult. And yet at the same time, there are principles in place that speak to this topic. Here's the challenge for us as a church. None of us has permission to whip out our favorite pair of scissors and cut that tension and say, I'm a people person. So dude, you just need to lighten up on the principles and making everybody feel bad about what happened and what didn't happen in their marriage situation. Okay, there's not a Christian in this room who gets permission to do that. You are a pillar and support of the truth. You have the responsibility to transfer the knowledge of God and the principles and truths of God from your generation to the next. That's not my job any more than it is anybody's job here. So we never, as Christians, have permission to be loyal to people at the expense of principles. Neither do we have the luxury or the permission to be loyal to principles at the expense of people. We're here to care for people who have walked through life and have got cuts and bruises and they're bleeding and they're hurting. And we have to do both here. Right? So we don't get to avoid 1 Corinthians chapter 7. We have to learn from it together as a people who believe in principles that matter. I think I wrote this out in your line. God has proclaimed truth, these principles to live by in spaces like sexual orientation, sexual identity, marriage, divorce, etc. While at the very same time, there are real people who are having a really hard time in these spaces of life. There's real gender confusion for people today. There's real same-sex attraction. There are real marriage struggles, disappointments, dysfunction, and breakdowns. There are many who have shed buckets of tears, faced an army of frustrations in this category, and that marriage ended in divorce. You may now be managing feelings of failure or shame or feeling judged, or or trying to figure out how to relate to somebody who's in your life that's near and dear to you, who you watch them walk through something. That to take another step to preserve that thing would have been grueling and horrible, and you don't know how you would have ever encouraged them to stay in such a horrible marriage. This, This is what's in our room together with us, the people that we love and are facing this subject together this way. But listen, we cannot avoid 1 Corinthians chapter 7. It's the inspired word of God. We cannot avoid it. We cannot turn from it. We cannot fail to welcome its insights into our world. And I desperately feel this for the young people sitting in our room. The generation coming behind us who's not ventured into marriage at all. 
Today, the ideas that sit in this category have conditioned our young people to have such a low view of marriage as perhaps never before. It's why people are getting married later and later. It's why there's more singles today than there ever have been. Because marriage is not valued. It's not treasured. It's not something to run toward. It's not something to prepare your life for. It's not something to do the hard work of making it work when it doesn't want to cooperate. When it's inconvenient. When it might keep you from the life you'd rather have. Our young people are watching this thing called marriage. And they're figuring out how they're going to enter into it. Whether they're going to subscribe to the same old antiquated ideas that are so outdated or not. Here's what I hope and want for your young people. I want our young people who have been in this church to have days in the future of their lives when they remember what their pastor said about marriage. In the face of a culture that's saying everything but what you're about to hear me say today, uh, I want our young people to be able to say, I remember my pastor used to say, and have a reference point for something that came from the authority of God's word and it wasn't just what showed up in the way of life in our culture and what becomes so common among us. We need God's radical word to help us in these types of subjects. Right, so quick summary points that I hope I answer these issues as we get back to this at the end. Well, first, marriage has a God-given purpose, definition, and boundaries. Second, marriage needs an upgrade in our day, without question. Third, cultural distance doesn't silence or redefine biblical convictions. That's a principle that should travel into our lives in every category. As our culture moves away from God, it does not redefine anything God has said. It just makes it sound weirder than ever. Last, there is an indismissible tension to be managed between caring about principles and caring for people. Listen, I've walked with a lot of couples. Our pastors have walked with a lot of couples. Our elders have spent a lot of time with a lot of couples. Some of them are wrestling through the most miserable situations in their marriages. Some of them come out of that putting their marriage together. Some of them fail and divorce ends up taking place. Those are grueling things to walk through. And if, if that's been a part of your story, that there's a humanity of you that I don't want in any way for you to have the idea that we're not aware of that. Of how much pain and how hard that was and how much you struggled and how much you fought for faith. How much you tried to make it work. How much you were patient in the process. Listen, this message is not about overlooking that. <clears throat> I'm trying to be faithful to what the Apostle Paul said. And he didn't teach in that area today. So I'm not going to spend a lot of time there. But the people dimension matters to us. And if you're not certain about it, I'm going to end the message this way. If you're not certain about that people dimension and how you walk through something, you need to come make an appointment with one of the pastors and sit down and talk through this significant event in your past. And can we just throw this out as a blanket statement? I can almost guarantee you, if you're here today... And you have, you got married and then you went through a divorce. You probably, if you were a Christian, got some form of marriage counseling. You probably did not get any divorce counseling. You probably read a book on marriage. You probably read nothing on divorce. 
And now you're living on the other side of that. This is a massively important topic that touches your life at a deep level. If you've never met for counseling on the other side of divorce, can I say you're way overdue for a very important meeting with a pastor to help you through that? So please put that in your thoughts as we move forward. Let me start with Mr. N.T. Wright commentary on 1 Corinthians. I think we all identify with his thoughts here. He says, divorce has swept the Western world like a plague. When I was young, nobody I knew in our street, my school, anywhere was divorced. There were occasional mentions of marriage breakdown well outside our close family and friends, but it was assumed that such things were as rare and as tragic as suicide. Within the last 50 years, all that has changed. And now every street, every family, every school, and even every church has some people who have been through divorce, often more than once. Some countries where divorce was almost unthinkable a generation ago have seen divorce statistics shoot up. The world in which Paul's converts lived was more like the Western world today than like that of the mid-20th century. Especially in the upper levels of social scale, divorce and remarriage was common. And there was strong social pressure, sometimes even legal pressure, for divorced and widowed people, especially women, to remarry quickly. Different societies had different customs and rules, right? This is the audience Paul is addressing here. He's not speaking to a people where divorce was rare. It was common. He puts his topic into a hornet's nest when he introduces this to the folks in Corinth because lots of people reading this and hearing this message are going to be on the wrong side of what he's saying. With increasing mobility on the one hand and the huge changes brought about by Christian gospel on the other, church members must have found themselves faced with a bewildering array of moral questions and difficulties. This is the minefield Paul is picking his way through in this passage. And as we watch him do it, we can learn a great deal that will help us in facing the minefields that we ourselves are called to walk through in our own day. So let's look at the Apostle Paul's thoughts to the Corinthians here in 1 Corinthians chapter 7. I'm just going to look in verse 10 through 16 and just right at the end of the chapter there. To the married, I give this charge, not I, but the Lord. The wife should not separate from her husband. But if she does, she should remain unmarried or else be reconciled to her husband. And the husband should not divorce his wife. To the rest, I say, I, not the Lord, that if any brother has a wife who is an unbeliever and she consents to live with him, he should not divorce her. If any woman has a husband who is an unbeliever and he consents to live with her, she should not divorce him. For the unbelieving husband is made holy because of his wife and the unbelieving wife is made holy because of her husband. Otherwise, your children would be unclean. But as it is, they are holy. But if the unbelieving partner separates, let it be so. In such cases, the brother or sister is not enslaved. God has called you to peace. For how do you know, wife, whether you will save your husband? Or how do you know, husband, whether you will save your wife? Look at the last verses there in chapter 7, verse 39 and 40. 
It says, a wife is bound to her husband as long as he lives. But if her husband dies, she is free to be remarried to whom she wishes only in the Lord. Yet in my judgment, she is happier if she remain as she is. And I think that I too have the spirit of God. All right, a couple of, couple of thoughts on the way in. Please keep in mind who this audience is and what they're hearing and how foreign it is to them. Because right? sometimes when we find ourselves feeling like the scripture is really, really foreign, we kind of dismiss ourselves from it in some ways. Okay, remember this audience that was, Paul had been inspired by the Holy Spirit to say these things into their situation. This was foreign. This is not the way the Romans and the Greeks did marriage and divorce. He creates a whole new set of thoughts for them. And he knows that the, what they have been practicing and what they have been believing is very far removed from what he's saying. He doesn't stop himself from saying it. He doesn't do a really, really, really long introduction. He just presents what God has to say about this subject. Notice as well, as you read through this chapter, be familiar with it. You see this in scripture. It's very important in this context that there is an ability to discern the difference between an unbeliever and a believer. There are such labels. They're biblical. We need to understand them. You treat believers one way, you treat unbelievers differently. There's an expectation for believers that is not there in scripture for an unbeliever because something profound has happened to a believer. You are not the same person. You are a new creation. So the Bible is going to speak to you as though that's true. And so when we talk marriage to a new creation, we're having a different conversation than when we talk marriage to somebody who doesn't know Christ. You have reasons for your marriage to be quite different as a believer who is now indwelt and empowered by the Holy Spirit than somebody who is not. This is not Paul giving marriage advice to the lost. This is Paul counseling the church. And so this is, that's helpful for us to understand as we read through this section. All right, I'm going to give two what I call critical insights that inform these passages I'm going to discuss the two situations that are here, and I'm going to try and limit this just to that, because this is a massive subject, and it is much bigger than these passages, and it's much bigger than whatever I can cover. But these are critical. You can't have a conversation about marriage and divorce without at least covering these things. First, there are objective standards concerning marriage. Marriage is not a subjective category of thought in scripture it's not different from person to person to person the individual doesn't design it he doesn't create the boundaries and the borders for it and that's so true that that's why paul has this language in in what he says the wife should not and the husband should not you should not do this when i when you start saying you should not that, there's a moral dimension to that. I just, I just spoke as though there are boundaries here. You could find yourself out of bounds. There are expectations when the word should and should not get used. It's not, hey, well, you could. Well, I'll think about it. It's up to you. That's not what Paul is saying here. He doesn't even say, hey, you might want to think about you know, taking the higher road. This is not a recommendation. This is a boundary-defining statement. You should not do this. And, and it's got to get heard that way. 
very hard for us to hear this this way because we, in our culture, the individual is king. The personal definitions for everything is what we feel like is the most important thing about our culture. You should personally be able to define your own life your own way. But once you do that, I can no longer tell you you should or should not do anything. So from the Bible's perspective, there is a should and should not when it comes to marriage. And do you know why that is? Because marriage is not man's invention. Man doesn't own the copyright or the patent on it. It's God's. God invented and designed marriage. It answers to him. So when any of us get to the point in life where we cruise through life, we get to a moment where we say, hey, I think I'd like to pick this thing up called marriage. I think, I think I'd like this in my life. It's already spoken for. You, you don't get to design it, to reboundary it, to say how big, how small it is, design the on-ramps and off-ramps to it. You only get to learn what the creator created. And then God turns around and speaks to you like this because he still thinks he owns the rights to marriage. Listen, young people, before you read too many bride magazines and thinks it's all about just designing this thing to ultimately have, you know, the decorations that you're interested in. If you touch marriage, the God of the universe owns that thing. He, he owns every aspect to it. Whatever you're planning to do with that thing, it's already spoken for. God already has an intention to it. And, and this is how we got into this chapter, right? If you just turn back one page, if you guys have Bibles with pages... Chapter 6 ends this way. On its way in here, it installs something that is critically important to our self-understanding. Chapter 6 ends this way on verse 19. Do you not know that your body is a temple of the Holy Spirit within you, whom you have from God? You are not your own. For you were bought with a price. So glorify God in your body. How many of you know you just can substitute marriage in there for the word body? Glorify God in your marriage. Because you and your marriage are not yours. It's God who owns this. He is the Lord. Listen, this complicates the issue of what do I do with my marriage? Well, the first thing you do with it is recognize it's not your marriage to do anything with. You have been bought with a price. You are not your own. You're going to have to consult the owner and the originator of this whole concept called marriage. So first principle, there are objective guidelines and standards that come from God as it pertains to marriage, even if our culture says we're not interested in being consulted by God. Well, God's not a consultant. He's the owner. And he owns marriage as well. Second, marriage travels through time and cultures, but it is not altered or redefined. It retains the original purpose of God. Hugely important because somehow we feel like the Bible gets out of touch. We create our own ideas and we feel like the Bible has some things that should have been or we suspect they were adjusted along the way. Okay, I'm going to just show you a couple examples here where that's not how this subject comes up. But here's, here's the reality. The concept of marriage that Paul is speaking of, it's traveled through Egypt, through Canaan, through Babylon, 
through corrupted Judaism, the Greek-Roman world there in Corinth, yet it still answers to God's original purpose and design. Watch how Paul here and elsewhere and Jesus interact with the subject of marriage. They go back to the original blueprint. They don't serve up something that's got updated. You know, like this is the updated version of marriage. This is the current version of marriage. Well, that's the old thing. You don't do that anymore. They go back to the origin. So if you and I are going to attempt to understand marriage and therefore to understand divorce, we're going to have to go back to the origins of how did we get here? What is this subject about? Genesis chapter 2, verse 21. So the Lord God caused a deep sleep to fall upon the man And while he slept, took one of his ribs and closed up its place with flesh, verse 22, and the rib that the Lord God had taken from the man, he made into a woman and brought her to the man. Okay, stop just for a second. Oh, there's too many thoughts to just compounding in here. I need to resist many of them. Um, you live in an age of designer marriages. And so you get to play God when you go to design your spouse, right? You want them to meet certain criteria, act a certain way, have these kind of profile. And they fill stuff out online and you check it off. And yeah, yeah, we match up well, et cetera, et cetera. Do you realize uh, Adam was sleeping while God was designing his perfect match? Not a good moment to be sleeping. Hey, Adam, while you slept, dude, here's what you get. Um, Could it be that God could be designing the perfect match for you without your ideas mixed into that person? And later on in your marriage, you're going to discover those things and go, what the heck was I thinking? Well, there was a God who was involved in your marriage too. And while you were sleeping, he was designing and poof, look what popped out. The person you're married to, right? This is where Eve comes from in this equation. Verse 24. Therefore, a man shall leave his father and his mother and hold fast to his wife. They shall become one flesh. A little mystery here. They just become One in this equation. And the man and his wife were both naked and were not ashamed. So hold on that thought. They they just become one flesh. We're going to figure out how that happens. Then we fast forward all the way to Malachi. And we hear this at the end of the Old Testament. Chapter 2 verse 14. Because the Lord was witness between you and the wife of your Youth. I want, you to, I want you to highlight in your mind, I don't know if we've highlighted these things, I wanted them to be highlighted, I don't think they're highlighted, um, that there are dimensions that you're going to hear in these next couple of verses of what God did in your marriage. So I just, I just want you to realize God's got a vested interest in your marriage because he did certain things in it. So before any of us think we can take it apart, the God who put it together did some things. So the first thing we see here in this passage is, He was witness. God stood as witness between you and the wife by covenant. Verse 15. Did he not make them one with a portion of the spirit in their union? Who did that in your marriage? God did. Two individuals came together in a covenant... God stood as witness, and then God did more than that. He made them. He did. 
He made them one with a portion of his spirit. God is entangled in your marriage. And you are wrapped up in him and he is wrapped up in this thing. That cord of three strands. Some of you had read at your wedding one day. God is in this thing. When you go to separate it, can you explain to me how do you separate the God portion who is knit to you and your spouse? This is not an easy thing when you read what the Bible says about it. And what was the one God seeking? You ever thought about that? What was God after in you getting married? Did you know God had an agenda when you got married? He intended your marriage for a particular purpose? See, these are not the things that we think about when we go to separate in a marriage. We're just thinking about how this doesn't work, how we're not happy, how this has hurt me. This is what God sees when he sees marriages. It's something he put together, something he joined himself to spiritually. And God was seeking something. I'll come back to that in a second. So guard yourselves in your spirit and let none of you be faithless to the wife of your youth. Right? And, and that doesn't just mean don't be sexually immoral. This, this was addressing the divorce patterns of their day. Do not be faithless to the person you made a covenant vow to with your life. Do not undo that. Do not become faithless to the person you pledged your life to. All of you, let none of you do this. Don't let anybody do it. Now I understand, and I'm going to get to the end of this message and talk about, but what about the really, really hard spaces? The really, really difficult situation, right? The humanity in this conversation pulls on the principles, doesn't it? Because the principle here just says, don't anybody do this. God has put something together. Don't anybody take it apart. And Jesus is going to say something just like that. But God's up to something here, right? What was God seeking? Well, in Ephesians chapter 5, when Paul talks a little further on marriage, he does the same thing. That there's a God agenda. It's tucked inside of marriages, Verse 22 of Ephesians 5 says, Wives, submit to your own husbands as to the Lord. For the husband is the head of the, of the wife, even as Christ is the head of the church. Now notice the importing of something here. Just now we were talking about marriage. Now we're talking about Christ and the church. Where did that come from? And it's going to be said more than once. Verse 25, husbands, love your wives as Christ loved the church. Here we go again. And gave himself up for her. So all this instruction, any of us who have done marriage counseling have counseled out of Ephesians chapter 5. There is, there is insights for husbands relating to wives and wives relating to husbands. But entangled in this topic is this Christ and the church comment over and over and over again. And when you get to the end of it, Paul explains your marriage this way. Therefore, a man shall leave his father and his mother. Right, So he reaches all the way back to Genesis. Original plan. And hold fast to his wife, and the two shall become one flesh. This mystery is profound. And I'm saying that it refers to Christ and the church. Wait, time out. Paul, we were just talking marriage a second ago. Yes, we were. And your marriage has an agenda inside of it that God is showing forth Christ and the church through your marriage. 
What was God seeking? Well, in Malachi, it tells us he was seeking godly offspring. Well, here it tells us he's seeking something again. He is seeking a revelation of Christ and his church through your marriage. Did you know that's what you were signing on for when you got married? That husbands were going to demonstrate, manifest the love of Christ into the earth as a revelation of how Christ loves his church. And wives were going to demonstrate the response of that love in submitted love for everybody to look on and see. Do you understand, when God goes fighting for your marriage, he's, he's not just fighting for whether or not the two of us are getting along. Whether we like each other right now. Whether we're just having difficulties putting up with how different we are from each other. There's other ingredients to our marriages. Jesus says this in Matthew chapter 19. Verse 3, Pharisees came, tested him. Is it lawful to divorce one's wife for any cause? He answered, have you not read? He who created them from the beginning made them male and female. Therefore, a man shall leave his father and mother and hold fast to his wife, and the two shall become one flesh. So they are no longer two. They're done being two. They are now one flesh. What therefore God has joined together, let no man separate. God, why not separate them? Because God joined them together. That's the reason. You don't separate it because God joined it together. Well, I thought we joined it together. Well, you played a role, but God was doing some joining here. And therefore God says, do not separate what I have put together. Verse 8 in that section, he said to them, Because of your hardness of heart, Moses allowed you to divorce your wives. But from the beginning, it was not so. Where does Jesus go when he wants to explain marriage? He goes to the beginning, as do others in Scripture. All right, here's a quick definition. Marriage equals God joining together one man and one woman in a one flesh covenant relationship that is not to be separated until death. Right, I, I get that from reading the scriptures. Right, 1 Corinthians chapter 7, verse 39 is going to end referencing that continuation element. A wife is bound to her husband as long as he lives. But if her husband dies, she is free. What is it that ends and separates this thing that God put together? It is death that does that. Romans chapter 7 picks it up, trying to make a theological argument about something else, uses marriage as an example. This is a clearly understood principle in Scripture. For a married woman is bound by law to her husband while he lives. But if her husband dies, she's released from the law of marriage. Accordingly, she will be called an adulteress if she lives with another man while her husband is alive. But if her husband dies, she is free from that law. And if she marries another man, she is not an adulteress. Uh, This one quote is from a book that I would highly recommend if any of you are seeking to get better insights on this whole subject of marriage and divorce. uh, Andreas Kirstenberger's book, God, Marriage, and Family. Um, it's It's a big, thick read. 
It's got some sections in it that you can go right to, some things about marriage, and some things about divorce. His footnotes are probably the best that are out there. If you want to read further, look up his footnotes and find the other sources that he mentions. There are volumes written on marriage and divorce, on agreeing on certain things and disagreeing. When is it allowed? When is it, when is it not? I can't possibly cover that today. But it is worth you knowing about, especially if you're ever going to be married or you are married right now. This is pretty critical stuff to know. Because you're going to make decisions out of what the scriptures teach. He says in his book, the opening chapters of Genesis make clear that God designed marriage to be permanent. While there is some debate among scholars regarding the intricacies of what holding fast and becoming one flesh means, there is no question that God designed marriage to be permanent. Did I put this in your outline? It sounds goofy, but it kind of helps us. This is the understanding that Paul brings to the primitive natives on the island of Corinth. Some of us have this idea that they're just human beings can live and they don't know any of this and they're so isolated and they live on this island somewhere and here comes the apostle Paul and he paddles his canoe up to this little island with all these little ideas about marriage and he steps on shore with them and notice what Paul doesn't do here this is so critical for people that Paul understood you guys don't do it this way you guys don't practice this you you don't agree with this you may not even know about it he doesn't say hey let's see if we can find some middle ground I've got, you know, I'm showing up, I've got this big book with me, and there's a bunch of principles in it, but, geez, you guys have never heard of any of this stuff. Let's see if we can start a little bit closer to where you're at. First thing out of his mouth, wives, don't separate from your husbands. Husbands, do not divorce your wives. And he doesn't even qualify it. He just installs a dead end and says, if you were, if you were pursuing that, stop pursuing it. How did this feel to these guys as some of them were in the midst of pursuing that? And all of a sudden Paul says that. Some of them had just finished pursuing it. And we're living on the other side of it. Now the apostle Paul is making me feel like, oh my gosh, I did the wrong thing. Now listen, if that's how you're feeling this morning, you, you know, stand in line behind the Corinthians. They had to encounter this presentation. A presentation of principles that we need to hear. So let me, let me give you a couple of scenarios that are here. Scenario number one is what he spells out in chapter 7, verse 10 and 11. A marriage of two believers. That's what you have in this first section here. Two believers. You have a, a Christian married to a non-Christian who are having difficulties and problems, reasons to break their marriage covenant. To them... To the married, I give this charge. The wife should not separate from her husband. The husband should not divorce her wife. Two different words, probably because of the cultural differences of how a wife would go about doing this versus how a husband might. Husband would have had much more laws in his favor. He would have had much more access to courts and action. Wife would not have. So it's possible that the only way a wife got out of a marriage was just leave. Just pack your stuff and disappear. So for you, wives, do not separate from your husbands. Husbands, do not divorce your wives. Those two different words probably are related to the culture that's there uh, in Corinth. But believing wives and husbands should not separate or divorce. 
If they have, if they're in a condition where they have, or that happens, then they are presented with two options. Remain unmarried, or be reconciled to the person you separated from. That's the only two options Paul offers in this passage. If what we've just flown through in a biblical presentation of the understanding of what happens when one gets married, it makes sense that he would only offer them that because he sees this as permanent. God has joined you together and as long as the other person's alive, you have a a connection, a covenant with that other person. So it would make sense for him to install this thought consistent with what the Bible teaches. But on the other side of these principles, there are people with complicated scenarios that we would do well to weep with, to pray for, to seek to be understanding, caring, supportive. But here's what complicates this first scenario. When we start asking these questions, but what if I'm not happy? What if we're, we're just not happy as a couple? That's a hard question. And it gets really hard to conclude that, well, would God want you to be unhappy? Uh, be careful how you answer the questions you ask yourself. Right? I'm in a hard marriage. I'm not happy. My spouse isn't happy. Would God want me to be unhappy? Well, that's, a, that's, a, that's probably the wrong question to try and be answering. God wants you to be blessed. God wants you to experience life. God wants all kinds of things for you. But before you ask whether he wants you to be happy, you might just want to ask, what does he want me to do with a bad marriage? And don't pollute that question with the happiness question. Because you might answer those two things differently, right? The bad marriage might mean God wants you to work really, really hard at your marriage. God wants you to work through some things that are in your marriage. God wants you to be transformed and your spouse to be transformed by the power of the Holy Spirit as you walk through this season of your life. That's a different question than does God want me to be happy or not? So we need to be careful in the questions we ask. But what what if we really weren't in love when we got married? You know how many Corinthians would have raised that issue? Because it was normal, as we said, in their day. They didn't marry because they were in love. They married for all kinds of reasons. Economic reasons, legal reasons, business reasons. So that wasn't a feature. It is for us. And we revisit, how did we get here? And we, we go back and all the stuff we overlooked when we were putting this, thing, this deal together with this other person, now we go back and criticize that. Now we go back and, and any sense of enjoyment and pleasure and meaningfulness, if you, if you were being honest along the way, was also accompanied with unattractive stuff, some hard thing. You just were ignoring all that because you were in love and you were blind and you were more than willing to do anything, including cut all your toes off so you could get married. But now, marriage doesn't feel that way. So I'm going to go back and revisit that decision. And I'm going to go back and say, I don't know if we were ever really in love. And almost as though as that's like a trump card today. You got Right now, I'm, I'm taking trump cards away from future counseling meetings. Because people will come in as though 
I can't stay in this because God would not want me to be happy. That's a trump card. And the other one is we weren't in love when we got married. As though that undoes what's here. Lots of them weren't in love when Paul told them, be married, stay married, don't pull the ripcord and jump, stay together, work it out. That was their situation too. Uh, What if I've fallen in love with someone else? That's a problem and that's complicated and emotionally that's going to be really, really difficult. But God has spoken and he's given us some things that are pretty clear right here. What if over time he or she has changed and isn't as thoughtful or attractive or we've discovered we're really, really different? Listen, this is not only educational for every marriage that goes through these seasons of difficulty. This is educational for every one of us who ever gives advice to anybody in this category. Where do you start when you go to give advice to people? Listen, when they're your children or somebody that you're close to, that you care about, and you're watching, and you got front row seats to their humanity, it's really, really hard to put a big value on those principles over there that are calling on you to have this person take the most difficult, awkward, self-denying step you can think of. Your humanity reaches for their humanity and just wants to say, ah, I don't blame you. I wouldn't do it another day either. But when you and I go to counsel, you know, we are not our own. And we have been bought with a price. And the same place that the Apostle Paul starts and the same place that Jesus starts is the same place you and I have to start. What was God's design and intention on this thing called marriage? And when I go to counsel you, I don't want to ignore your humanity. And any of you know who come, your humanity is hurting. I'm crying right along with you. We'll sit in meetings together and we'll cry together. Because I know this is painful to go through. But I don't have permission to jettison the truth of God that's present in Scripture when our humanity is bleeding. We're going to need to seek some other means through the painfulness of this than just to jettison what God has said. We cannot be those people. We're following God through some difficult waters. Listen, if, if you are in your marriage, marriage, advice to marriage here, if you are in your marriage with this installed understanding from God, not because it's convenient for this moment, but from God that your marriage was intended to be a permanent thing that only gets undone through death. If you're convinced of that, you're going to be in your marriage in the most difficult of times in a different way than the person who believes there's an off-ramp for this. I, I can get out of this. You remember the idea that, you know, Cortez, when he showed up in the new land, burned his boats? You guys have heard that phrase before? He burned his boats? Had all these folks and soldiers and settlers come with him and he knew the road ahead was very difficult. Lots of lives would be lost. Disease was awaiting them. But we're going to press through. And so he lands in the new world and burns his boats. Why do you do that? Because there ain't going, no going back now. So what are you going to do when you confront difficulty and there's no going back? You will find your way through it. You will not give yourself permission to not find your way through it. 
The day you start giving yourself permission to not find your way through your marriage difficulties, your flesh will come to town in a massive power and will do everything in its power to steer you towards that off-ramp. If you will consider divorce, the forces in this world, the forces at work in your humanity, the weakness in us and sin operating will do everything in its power to steer you toward that option. The thing that guards you from that is that's not an option. And so when it's hard and it's difficult, that's not an option. So what do I do? I stay in the game. I stay engaged. I pray. I fast. I do everything in my power. Don't know what this other person's going to do, but I'm doing everything in my power to see this thing continue for the glory of God because God has an interest here. Second scenario, a marriage of a believer and an unbeliever. And that's the next few verses there. And without reading back through that, first, let me just say, as a concept, worth being studying, especially if you're unmarried, uh, the, the Bible puts boundaries around marriage and says, if you're a believer, you are only to be married to another believer. So this scenario is not an endorsement. It's just reporting what was happening in Corinth. So this was not an endorsement that believers were running around marrying unbelievers. No, no, no. The Bible actually says, it finishes this chapter in verse 39, that if the wife has a husband who dies, she's free to marry only in the Lord. There's a boundary right there. And he speaks emphatically about that. And he comes again in 2 Corinthians chapter 6 and says, Do not be unequally yoked together with unbelievers. For what fellowship has darkness and light or partnership can you have with somebody whose loyalty is not the Spirit of God in them? So this is not describing that any believer should be seeking a marriage to an unbeliever. But if that were the case... That somehow that's happened. More than likely in Corinth, one of them got saved. They were married before. One of them got saved and one of them is not. And they're traveling through life together and, and you know, they're growing apart. They're, they're not on the same page anymore. This guy wants the kingdom of God and she does not or vice versa. And you get to a point where I, I, I just want to be married to a believer who loves the same things. I love, wants to go to church with me sometime, etc. Paul turns to that person. And says, if your unbelieving spouse consents to live with you, do not divorce them. As unpleasant as that might be. And again, Paul, I suspect Paul was a caring dude, but he just said this pretty quickly and moves on. That's a hard thing to walk out. It needs a lot of care and a lot of encouragement along the way to walk that out. But then there's another scenario here where you have a believer married to an unbeliever and the unbeliever says, I'm done. I don't want to do this anymore. I don't want to stay in this for whatever reason. It could be because you're a believer and I don't like all that stuff. It could be because I just think you're fat and I don't want to be married to a fat person. It could be anything that the Bible just doesn't even develop. What's the reason behind this person leaving? At the end of the day, the unbeliever leaves and the believer is told, let them go and be at peace. And he's arguing with some stuff here. It's like, well, wait, but I had an influence on their life. I could have led them to Christ. Well, how do you know, oh man, whether you'd ever lead them to Christ? How do you know, oh woman, whether you'll ever bring them to Christ? Be at peace, let them go. So in, in this setting, 
We get introduced to principles that guide us in a massive subject. This is a big, big subject, right? Paul doesn't spell out everything in this section. If you want to understand marriage and divorce, you're going to have to go outside of 1 Corinthians 7 and import more information than just this. There's very little being said here about remarriage and what is or is not allowed in the category of remarriage. And any of you who have studied this, you're waiting for me to jump into that conversation and I'm not going to today because it's too late. But that's a massively important subject. A person who's been divorced, can they remarry? That needs to be studied carefully. There are some implications here from what's presented about the possibility of remarrying in certain conditions. But there are boundaries here to be discovered. That the Bible has something to say about whether one ever does divorce or not. It installs, in these verses we've looked at today, it installs something. And I appreciate it. I got a question from somebody asking me, Keith, you used the term biblical divorce a couple of weeks ago. Is there such a thing? It's a great question. Any of us who are serious about marriage should have that question in our arsenal that we have looked into to see, is that ever allowed? Well, without going into detail, and again, I would recommend Kirstenberger's book to you to do a thorough study in this category and others that we could recommend as well. Jesus introduced something in his response and Paul introduced something in his response that both end in divorce. So I think if one wants to say, I find this in the Bible, you're going to find narrowly two situations sitting in the massive shadow of the permanence of marriage. And that's what the massive shadow is. The permanence of marriage is a massive shadow. Two things are sitting underneath that shadow. One is divorce because of sexual immorality. Jesus mentions that. And because it's there and because he brings it up in more than one place in the Gospels, one has to take notice that even in the shadow of permanence, God mentions sexual immorality as affecting whether or not you are allowed to pursue a divorce. Not mandated, you're never mandated to pursue a divorce. But whether you're allowed to pursue that. And then the second one is brought up here by the Apostle Paul. You have been abandoned. Your spouse has left you. Um, it's a larger question if you're two believers and somebody's abandoned that raises a whole other set of questions that you should come talk to us about if that's your situation but those two scenarios are the only scenarios that one can make a biblical reference point to when they said I am divorced because of sexual immorality or abandonment you can go to scripture and find those reasons when you get Outside of those two, you may have reasons, but you're going to be hard-pressed to supply biblical reasons for a divorce in that category. Let's see, Eric, where are Eric? Eric, can come back up here. Um, all right, it was a massive amount of teaching, I realized, because this is a complicated subject. It's an important subject. It's a very important subject. Let me just conclude the different categories that are here. If you are unmarried here today, whatever single, never been married, whatever category of unmarried you are in, uh, one, recognize this thing called marriage. It's owned by God. 
And he has a purpose for it. You're going to bump into these verses later on. And if you ignore that and suddenly you realize you joined yourself to something that you don't own the rights to. This is where you get down the road in the body of Christ and it feels like this is an awkward place to be. Because there's these principles that people keep referring to. Pay attention to those principles. When you go to get married, these are the principles that God is going to hold you to. Jesus, if he bumped into you, the Apostle Paul bumping into you, he's going to go back to the origins of marriage and he's going to talk to you about your marriage. And, and none of us should be saying, I didn't know anything about that. Listen, don't get married without looking into this further. Because I know a lot of people who do. The most important thing you can realize is marriage is not yours. It belongs to God. And you're going to need to consult him on that. Guard yourself, Malachi said, in your spirit. And do not be faithless toward the wife of your... Guard yourself now while you're single. Guard your approach to marriage. Guard what you let yourself believe about this union. If you're married, burn your boats. Go back and be convinced that what God created really was good. Even if you're like one of the disciples going, ooh, man, I don't know about this. This sounds nuts. That's what they said too. Which makes you curious about what was Jesus saying that it caught them like that? He was saying something very profound and very narrow. And it was God's plan. And it's going to take faith, the power of the Holy Spirit for that plan to come to pass. In our lives. Guard yourselves. Guard yourselves. Be ready to fight for your marriage. Do not give yourself an out. Fight like this is what I have for the rest of my life. I'm going to make this thing work. And the most difficult category here is to the divorced. This is a really hard topic. If you're here today and you've been through a divorce and you feel all kinds of emotions have come to you while we've been talking about this, you're remembering how hard, how disappointed, how hurt, how long you waited, how much patience you had, how bad it kept getting, how much you tried to hang in there. You remember feeling you maybe still do feel like you're ostracized now. You're kind of not part of any setting because you've got this scarlet D on your head amongst people who have principles and they don't know what to do with your situation and you don't feel cared for by that. This is a very, very difficult place to be. Here's what I, I, I would never rescue a person from. I will not rescue you from what the Bible says. So if the Bible says you did something that was wrong or out of bounds, I cannot rescue you from that. I would not want to rescue you from that. The question that needs to come next is, is there hope and redemption and a future purpose of God for those who find themselves in such a place? Yes. Yes, there is. But here's what I'm not going to do today either. I'm, I'm not going to pull out a quick dose of grace and smear it all over every divorce in the room. 
and just say, hey, there you go. You know Jesus forgives. You know Jesus died for your sins and mine. You know these things are true. And yet, somehow, you have sat through the most profound teaching, some of you, on grace, on the blood of Christ, on forgiveness. And when you saw this subject today, your stomach sank to your feet. And you still feel wrong about it. I can almost guarantee you, you haven't had any divorce counseling yet, have you? So here's what I want to invite you to do. And I'm going to busy up all the elders and pastors right now by saying this. This is a massively important issue. If you are on the other side of divorce, there is forgiveness, there is cleansing, there is grace, there is mercy, there is a future, there is a pathway, there is a purpose that God has for you. You might need some serious help getting your hands on that so you can walk in that in the future and not just feel like I'm on the outside of God's people in this category, and I don't know what to do with it. But you're going to need some help to sort through that. And I would guess if you're here and it's been hard to sort through that, just inviting you up for a five-minute prayer where you take everything that I just said and you apply some grace over the top of it probably isn't sufficient. This is a really big deal in your soul. You were mysteriously joined to another person by God. And he said, don't separate them. And the two are no longer two, but they're one. And yet here you are. That's an that's a unusual place to be. That needs wisdom from God. That needs grace from God. So could you do this? You can come run up here afterwards and say, hey, Pastor Peter, Evan, uh, elders, can, can, I, can I get a meeting? I, I just need to talk through some things. That would be normal, godly. And there shouldn't be anybody in this room who feels like a second-class citizen in the kingdom of God. And if you do feel that way, it's just another advertisement for you have left this alone in your life without addressing it. Because you're going to need the courage to stare at that thing and say, yes, I was out of bounds in what I did. Or I was not. Some of you were not. Some of you were. And and if you can't face the reality of that, then that's where the, the little quick applications of grace don't work for you. Because there's something inside of you that says, I blew that off. I didn't do that. I chose to take a different route. And your heart condemns you. But there's something about grace at work in your life that when we own things in the presence of God and we receive grace from God, our hearts do not condemn us. So if your heart's still condemning you in this category, you probably need some care and some help so you can go on in your life the way in which God wants you to. So let's, let's stand together and let me pray for us. Lord, this is a huge and important category for us. So many needs are in the room with this word. God, you have drawn near. You drew near to those Corinthians. 
You sent the gospel to them. You discipled them through the apostle Paul. You loved their lives right where they were with all of its brokenness. You spoke to them. You led them out of things. But Lord, you were their God and you were near to them and they had your Holy Spirit operating among them. That's true here today as well. That's true whether we've never been up close to divorce or whether personally we've been through divorce. Lord, it's true. We belong to you. We celebrated that in our covenant meal today. We are yours. And you are at work in our midst. Lord, there are marriages in our midst. Probably here this morning. Who have pondered whether the best way to fix this bad situation is just to end it. God, we pray for those who are here today. We've heard a word that doesn't invite them into something easy. Or they will need faith from you. They will need grace from you. They will need the power of the Holy Spirit to take any steps that you have for them. Or there are some who are here who are trying to live on the other side of divorce. Lord, not everybody's story will be the same. Some chose divorce. Some initiated divorce. Some perhaps committed sins that broke their marriage down. Some didn't want a divorce, but here they are anyway. Lord, our world has fallen and we need you. Our world just hurts sometimes, God, and we need you. So Lord, for everyone in that place this morning, God, the tearing of one being separated from another. God, I pray in the days ahead that grace would come into these settings. Awareness of your nearness would come. The power of your spirit, the cleansing of your work. But I pray for doors to be open of ministry and care. Or for some to feel welcome to go talk to a dear friend or a mature believer, one of the elders in the church or a pastor. To talk about something that maybe they've never been able to talk about. But God, would you pour out grace upon our lives? Lord, I love the idea. I love the reality that when I read the scriptures, sin and brokenness don't have the last word. You have the last word. So Lord, would you invade this category of our lives? And would you not let sin or brokenness in our world have the last word? Would you not let folks live under the shadow of this? in their past instead to receive much grace from a God who is greater than every moment every sin 
every failure, every moment we were a victim of somebody else's activity. Lord, you are greater than those places. I'll let Eric close us with a song. Actually, I'm not going to let him do that because it's 10 after 12. I'm sorry. I, I apologize for such a lengthy introduction. I am very concerned to hurt people who we love dearly in this church. I'm, I'm going to dismiss you guys, but maybe there's some folks here who just want prayer for something happening. Maybe you want to just take an initial step of, into this category and come connect with one of the pastors or the elders up here in the front. We'd be glad to pray with you. Whatever your need may be, please come avail yourselves of some care right now. Love you guys. We'll see you next week.